The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106 FM. The Money Show brought to you by APSA CIB, raising a glass to celebrate APSA's Pan-African Excellence. APSA's a registered FSP. Friday night explainer with a difference this evening. You'll hear the serious side of Alfred Adrian this evening, the stand-up comedian not being funny at all, talking about the middle-class uh, financial crisis that South Africans face. He, is, he just expresses it so brilliantly. We'll bring that to you in just a bit. Tato Mashiho will explain two days of extraordinary exuberance on South African markets. We'll play uh, our, our Brutal Biz quiz, of course, and we've got the Friday file in between seven and eight, the best bits of The Money Show from the week that has been. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. First up this evening, it took exactly a year between the time that the FTX cryptocurrency scandal broke in November last year, the 2nd of November, to Sam Bankman-Fried, the mastermind of that catastrophe, being found guilty yesterday, the 2nd of November, on seven counts of fraud and conspiracy. Charges against him, complex, and they included wire fraud, conspiracy to commit wire fraud, conspiracy to commit securities fraud, blah, blah, blah. Lots of charges. He faces up to 110 years in prison after being found guilty. That's in sharp contrast to South Africa's most high-profile fraud. It's been six years, in December this year, it'll be six years, since the price of Steinhoff collapsed and was revealed that there'd been accounting irregularities, which led to the business finally recently being wound up. The alleged chief perpetrator who denies that butter would melt in his mouth, Marcus Joester, is yet to see the inside of a South African or a German courtroom for that measure. What can we learn from the different experience of the prosecution, the speedy prosecution of Sam Bankman-Fried versus the non-prosecution of a Marcus Joester? Rob Rose is the editor of the Financial Mail on the line to us from Joburg this evening. It's chalk and cheese, isn't it, Rob? Getting Bruce, um, absolutely it is. And you've seen the same with similar instances globally, like we saw Wirecard, for example. It didn't take very long for the perpetrator of the Wirecard fraud to be sentenced to, to jail. Um, you know, South Africa, we haven't had that experience. We have, besides Steinhoff, we have EOH, uh, we have Tongat Hewlett, we have you know, the VBS prosecutions, which are dragging on, and we haven't really seen much accountability. And I suppose that mirrors what you see in the public sector too. Uh, absolutely. And I mean, these, these are critical issues because you know, a, a crime unprosecuted is a crime perpetrated without any consequences. There's no signal sent to anybody that there is any consequence for committing white collar crime. Yes, it's embarrassing. Yes. Um, you know, your friend, you might, you may have to change your friend's circle uh, in some cases, not at all. Uh, and it's just, it's a, it's a diabolical sort of mistreatment of the justice process, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's some fundamental differences in the way it's been treated. I think that if you look at the way the U.S. case went in this FTX case, I mean, certainly their prosecution strategy was a lot better. They got people to testify, um, you know, plead guilty for lesser sentences and, and, and then testify against Sam Bankman-Fried. And, and I think that that is what helped. And we haven't had that sort of smart prosecution strategy in the Steinoff case for a long time in Steinoff. They've been deciding whether they're going to go for the whole case or narrow in on a very small element of it to make sure that the charges stick. So there's been a confusion in our prosecuting authority about the way we're going to do it. Um, and then, Bruce, as you know, the, the quality of policing, if you read through the National Prosecuting Authority annual report, the quality of policing and the cases presented to the NPA for prosecution is often very flawed. Um, 
as we saw in, in the case of the Gupta leaks as well. So I think there are issues around prosecution strategy as well as the quality of policing and the cases presented to them, which make it very difficult. It's such an interesting point. It's it's such an interesting point that you make there because these are complex crimes. These are crimes uh, that are carried out by highly educated, highly capable, highly innovative um, people. Um, and you know, sometimes it's it, it's very easy. The VBS frauds are dead easy. I mean, that was really didn't take mm. much unpicking at all. Money in, money out. Um, the, the the fraud around uh, around Steinhoff is more complicated. But there's a thousand page. PwC report, which I know you would love to read, but is For still sure. being kept out of the public eye. The DA is Glynis Breitenbach. We got hold of her earlier today, and she has another engagement this evening, but she was really blunt on the subject, saying the U.S. has got a fully functional and well-resourced criminal justice system. The Justice Department is taken seriously and is well-funded. Investigative agencies are taken seriously and well-trained and well-funded. I think that goes to your point, does it not, of the breakdown in the justice system, particularly when it comes to complex crimes. Absolutely, and I think that Glynis Breitenbach was one of the few who handled these complicated commercial crimes. And when she left, cases involving, say, the construction cartel and the price fixing around the 2010 World Cup just fell apart. They disappeared. She handled the Barry Tannenbaum Ponzi scheme, and there's been no movement on that. I mean, Barry Tannenbaum, who was responsible for this, this 2 billion rand Ponzi scheme, or, or 10 billion, whatever it was, is now sitting in Australia, and, and nothing has happened. So, you know, with the departure of a few good people in the NPA, um, cases vanish, they disappear. And I think that it's, you know, I think that investors, Bruce, as you know, want to see accountability and consequence for things gone wrong. And I think it's difficult to invest in this country if there's no sense that there will be consequence when things do go wrong, like in this case. Rob Rose, thank you very much indeed. Editor at the Financial Mail on the Money Show this evening. Yeah, pointing to the failure, it's not just in the courts, and it is... The information that is handed to the National Prosecuting Authority, the stuff that is collected by the investigating officers, and the quality of that can often be sorely lacking. I'm going to bring you our Money Show explainer in just a moment, but I just loved this story. It's a story that I missed in June this year. It sort of rings a very distant bell, but I didn't draw attention to it. I didn't think it was relevant. This week, suddenly, though, the story from June has become relevant. We've not only enjoyed success against New Zealand twice this year in their second and third most competitive ex exploits. Those are rugby and cricket. But in June, we beat them at something they really should be world number one in. A piece I found in the New Zealand Morning Herald reporting um, in June this year of the Golden Shears World Shearing and Wool Handling Championships that were held in Scotland this year. New Zealand failed to win a single title for the first time in 19 events since the championships began in 1977. Who were, who emerged as the finest sheep shearers in the world, if it wasn't the Kiwis? Well, it was a South African team. In both the blade shearing individual and teams events, the South African pairing of Bonile Rabela and Zuela Marcosi Mbueni came out tops. So not only did we beat New Zealand in the cricket recently, but also in the rugger and even in sheep shearing. You can't make this stuff up. The Kiwis have had a terrible year. You think you're having a tough time. <laughs> the Kiwis are hating life. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. 
Time for our Money Show Explainer. And every Friday we dive into a topic that needs a bit more depth, perhaps a little bit more explanation. Maybe it's a bit technical. Maybe it's just a, been a very noisy week and we've kind of missed out. And so we, we use this opportunity to regroup. Tonight, a different take on this idea, though. I came across a deeply moving and compelling video posted by a South African comedian, and it's not the slightest bit funny. There's one slightly humorous moment, but it's not the slightest bit funny. In the week of the medium-term budget policy statement, it's so easy to get lost in the big numbers. And the big numbers are important. Fiscal fiscal certainty is an absolutely critical, no-brainer, non-negotiable fact. But it's kind of high-level and quite boring and quite difficult to relate to. Government finances and their stability are critical for the future success of the country. We can all agree on that. Beneath the surface, however, lots of South Africans are struggling. And I'm not even here talking about the unemployed and the growing army of homeless people on our streets. Middle-class South Africans, the the, the, the group of people who keep the country going in terms of providing uh, the white-collar labor and paying the majority of the taxes are really struggling. It's people with mortgages and car loans, school fees and medical aid. The cost of living crisis is a global phenomenon and people everywhere are fed up. Now, here we are most concerned, of course, about the South African situation. And I found this take by the stand-up comedian, TV personality, the, the vlogger, Alfred Arjan, the most eloquent and compelling of how the buying power of middle and income, upper-income households has been just eviscerated in recent years. Here's Alfred Adrian being vulnerable and not a bit funny. Dear Mr. President, Mr. Ramaphosa, with all the respect I can master in my heart, I need to tell you something. We are struggling. We are South Africans are struggling. I had to pay my, my debit orders came off this morning. Every, every time, this time of the month, my wife and I, we have a discussion about what needs to be paid. Now, mind you, me and my wife have worked really hard not to have any credit card debt or short-term loan debt, and we've had no, we have no car debt. We paid off those things. We have both work, we both have businesses, and I am fortunate to have a very supportive audience, so I don't, I can't complain. I'm probably, I, w- I should be doing very well, but I'm not. I'm not because life has become so unbearably heavy and expensive. My, my child goes to a private school because the public schools in the area is just not up to scratch and I want to, him to have opportunities and options in life. I have a second child. He's a baby of three months old. It's, you know, my wife buys things. She's got a, a business where she um, sells clothing, secondhand clothing, for the lack of a better word. She likes to call it pre-loved things. So we get pre-loved prams. My wife goes out and buys secondhand stuff wherever we can. We earn a good salary, but somehow, every time, this time of the month, I'm panic-stricken. I'm a working-class South African struggling and worried about if what would happen if I didn't make an income, if I cracked an ankle, if I couldn't work, God forbid I was in hospital. By the way, my, our biggest expenses are medical aid because we can't go to government hospitals because the truth is I've lost family members in there that went in for one thing and died of something completely unrelated to that. Right? You know what's happening. I'm just saying that 
every day South Africans always say, oh, it's tough right now, it's tough right now. But we really, you know, maybe this gets to you. Pass this on to the president. We really need your help now. We need you to come to the party for us. We are struggling, man. Working class people, we are panicking. Because every month we barely go, it's like we can barely make these bills. I have no debt. I've got a moderately sized house compared to my friend's circle. I don't know how my friends do it with bigger houses and bigger bonds. Those bonds, those interest rates, just this year, for many people have gone up with thousands of rands that they could not afford. I see people all the time that have great jobs, degreed people. I'm fortunate, my parents put me through good schools. Degreed people, I've got a B, I'm a become grad. All my friends, most of them are, are, are degreed people. And they are barely making it every month or not making it and smiling because they don't want to be the person that looks like they're the only one struggling. But we are struggling out here, barely making ends meet, as they say. I just want to, to know that when you read the State of the Nation and, and your ministers read those finance things at the beginning of the year, know this. South Africans are having a terrible time. And if we as the working class are struggling, what about the people that aren't making the money? What's going on there? I cannot, I can, I don't know. Our expenses on petrol and food has gone through the roof. I don't know if you really know what's happening with us. I don't, I don't know. So I'm going to invite you to come to Mitchell's plane on the 2nd of December. My people there will let you know. I see people all the time. They come to my shows just for a little bit of, just to escape. Come to any of my shows. Promise you we won't treat you badly. The aunties will put out tea, I'm sure of it. But let us tell you what's happening with us and how hard it is. And we need you, we need to know that you know we're struggling. And we need a plan to get out of this because it can't go on like this. I found that really compelling. A funny guy speaking from the heart. Alfred Adrian. He's a usually stand-up comedian, a TV personality, a vlogger. Just talking about the high cost of living. Talking about the real pain that you're feeling each and every single day as you're watching more money go out the door that's coming in the door and saying to the president, do you really get it? You can hear that Alfred nearly cracked <laughs> at the point where he invites the president to Mitchell's plane. We won't treat you badly, but he's got this wicked little smile in his voice. Uh, I found that really compelling. I was really moved by it, and I hope you were as well. Um, on Money Show Explainer this evening, that's the consequence of a poorly run country. That's the consequence of a budget that's been blown on non-growth items for a decade and a half. That's the consequence of national mismanagement. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB. Join APSA to toast and celebrate Pan-African excellence. APSA's a registered FSP. Have you heard the South African National Blood Service is digitizing its processes at donation sites nationwide? As a result, Donation sites will close on the 5th and the 6th of November. That is Sunday. No, that's tomorrow. No, that is Sunday. 
Don't reinvent the live read, Bruce. That's Sunday and Monday uh, to finalize the digital migration. In the meantime, they will have extended operating hours. Uh, they've been in place since the 23rd of October. You can, they'll extend it this evening as well to make sure that we don't get any sort of compromised blood stock. So those extended hours will vary at each donation site. And if you are on your way home this evening and you're feeling just like, I feel like helping others, 0800 119 to confirm your donation site's operating hours as they make this move into the digital world. The South African National Blood Service digitizing its, digitizing its processes. You won't be able to donate on Sunday and Monday, but they'll stay open a little later for you this evening. 0800-119-031. The Money Show. The Markets. To Tato Mashiho we go. Tato is a portfolio manager at Sundown Private Wealth on the line to us uh, from Joburg this evening. And I'm loving the rally that we're seeing on the JSE. I'm loving the rally. It is an enthusiastic and a passionate rally. It is a rally that feels like it's been operated from the, the, the upper deck of the Springbok bus, which had an incredible day across Gauteng yesterday. It's had an astonishing day in the Western Cape today. And that level of enthusiasm and joy and exuberance is surpassed only by Sio Kodisi's own passion and energy. It's been nothing short of extraordinary. But let's focus on markets if we can, Tato. A 2.5% gain yesterday, 2% gain today. Let's not forget that that basically means that we are basically level for the year. This isn't exceptional. It's nice, but we still are nowhere year on year. Well, good evening, Bruce. I think the, the markets have taken cue indeed from the Springboks this week and coming back from uh, a deficit, if you will, for the year. And as you say, uh, we are pretty much level. Uh, so I think we may just uh, see a, a nice rally um, towards the end of the year and a lot of risk on sentiment that we're seeing, not just locally, but, but globally as well. So it's been a very strong week. I think uh, the best week in over a year, uh, if we look at global equities, up for percent and uh, people are feeling very very confident um, perhaps global investors as well um, celebrated with us last weekend so okay let's take the rugby out of the equation um it's down to more boring things than that unfortunately and it's down <laughs> entirely in, in, my, um, in my view, uh, to expectations of inflation and interest rates. And today, we had the U.S. announce 150,000 jobs were created last month, which is magnificent, but it's below what was expected, 180,000. And that sort of supports the thesis that if interest rates aren't going to go down anytime soon, they really are less likely than at any time in the last six months to go up. I think you're spot on in in that sense. Uh, the the jobs data that came out of the U.S. today showing unemployment has ticked up to 3.9 percent from a low of three and a half percent earlier in the year, and so investors are, I think, uh, correctly um, suggesting that the Fed is unlikely to to hike going forward. We know they held rates uh, constant at their meeting um, this this Wednesday, and they did suggest that there may be another 25 percent hike uh, going forward. But with today's uh, jobs numbers showing that the economy is slowing, I think a lot of people are now actually predicting that we've reached the ceiling in terms of rate hikes. And the market is actually pricing in rate cuts um, as early as June next year, which of course is very positive for for equities. And we've seen a nice rally so far um, in in some of the the, uh, the more riskier equities. And and this is why our currency as well is now at 18.2 from I think around 18 and a half earlier on. So a lot of risk on sentiment uh, that we're seeing. 
Yeah, most certainly. I, I just wonder how long it lasts. I think we're so battered, bruised and, and frightened uh, by the huge volatility that we've seen in markets in the last year or two that I, it kind of feels a little bit too good to be true, really. Um, you, you did imply that there could be a nice little pre-Christmas rally. That driven, I suppose, by what? A, a, a world looking finally outside of America for assets they can invest in. And by any stretch, South Africa's assets are cheap. Well, we have been uh, very cheap for a, a very long time, and I think we don't need to go into all of the economic reasons for that. But if uh, we are starting to see um, investors looking outside of, of the U.S., then certain emerging markets, perhaps our own, may become a, a little bit more more interesting. So the, the flight to safety trade may have run its course, and uh, if people are starting to feel a bit more optimistic and that's at this point in time largely just based on well interest rates and cost of capital isn't rising anymore then perhaps we may have a case to make what are the risks in South Africa I mean we've seen the medium-term budget policy statement it's made for awful listening Um, I, I wonder what you see as the biggest risk to us right now the fiscal situation has to come as arguably the biggest risk, but that in itself is driven by the underperforming economy, which again is probably driven by a lack of infrastructure investment, ESCOM and Transnet in, in particular. So companies are not able to, to trade, uh, whether it's via load yeah. sharing or, you know, we know the whole story, and that just leads to lower tax receipts. But you cannot be spending north of 20% of uh, your, your budget on, 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 on finance and costs. It, it does not become sustainable if your economy is not growing. So that is a medium-term risk. Um, perhaps investors in the very short term are overlooking that aspect. But we do know that uh, it, it doesn't end well if things remain on the trajectory they are. So we we, we all hope that uh, this, the situation will, will turn around, but um, it, it cannot continue for as, as it is currently. Tato, thank you. Tato Mashiho is a portfolio manager at Sundown Private Wealth. Uh, Beryl in the south of Joburg, you want to have a, uh, make a comment on I, what I thought was a, a, a really heartfelt appeal to the president by stand-up comedian Alfred Audra. Yes, hi, Bruce. You know, that caller, and I'd like, to, I'd like to really echo his sentiments. In fact, I don't just want to echo his sentiments. I want to say, you know, it doesn't matter. So we are struggling. South Africans are really struggling. And, and, you know, when I look around and I look at my children and I look at the people around me, and if the struggle... Um, showed us that the money and and what we are doing is going towards something that is, um, you know, worthwhile. Like, for example, if the health sector was working, if the taxes that we were paying were actually, something was working in this country, I would say it's worth the sacrifice. But nothing works. Nothing, absolutely nothing works when it comes to government services. So what the heck are we paying so much in terms of taxes? We pay so much in terms of fuel levies. Last month, I put petrol in my car. It normally costs me 1,200. 1,600 rand later. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely. pathetic. If I saw this morning, I heard on the radio, the RAF is in trouble. What department Again. sector is working in this country? What government department is actually working and doing a good job? 
and the Beryl, thank you very much indeed. Beryl, uh, plaintively supporting the views. I thought, I thought that, and why I liked Alfred Adrian's contribution this evening was that it was so calm um, and just appealing for solutions. Beryl, people like Beryl, people like you, just going, you know what? I'm full. <laughs> and it starts with a kh. And people are yeah, pretty fed up. The Money Show. The Friday File. The Friday File. Before we get to the meat and potatoes, well, actually the cheese of the Friday file, because that's what it's about this evening. Uh, I've just had an email from Mzingisi Mpiti, and Mzingisi sends a lovely email talking about the fact that he listens to The Money Show, and that's wonderful, Mzingisi, thank you. He says, you interview top CEOs in South Africa. There's an advisory of CEOs to the president. What do they say are the solutions? Because government keep giving us a picture that things are changing. And uh, he is saying that I've just listened to the clip of the comedian Alfred Adrian, and it's a painful time for the country. And clearly, Mzingisi relates. He says, are things going to change or will deteriorate till the end? Mzingisi, I don't think we should ever give up. Um, and that's the, the point of elections. It's the point of inflection points like medium-term budget policy statements where you and I have got to draw a line in the sand and say this far and no further. We've got to draw out the inequities of the system. We've got to draw attention to the fact that we cannot keep spending the profligate spending that we, the way we spend it started when uh, uh, Pravin Gordon was finance minister. He anticipated growth that didn't happen. And we, we've blown the budget on consumption and we've not invested on the the stuff that we needed, the infrastructure we needed. Yes, we spent billions on power stations and billions on billions and billions and billions and billions too much on stuff. Uh, but it was so corrupted and so fraught and so abused that as South Africans, we just haven't had the, the value for it. So Mzingisi, the money's been spent in the wrong place. Um, South Africa's best chance right now is the CEO initiative. And I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the proximity of big business and the big government together. I don't know if it's, you know, sustainably healthy. Um, but at the moment, government needs all the help it can get. And big business needs an environment in which it can thrive, in which it can succeed. It cannot thrive and succeed in a perpetually dysfunctional environment. It, it does need some stability and some certainty. And what we're seeing come through, Mzingis, and this is a high-level stuff that doesn't relate directly and immediately to the problems that everybody is feeling, Alfred and you and many others. Uh, and that is that in the, in the in the short term, you've got to fix the big stuff. You've got to fix the really boring, complicated stuff that doesn't have an enormous and immediate benefit on any of us. But you've got to do it. Because if you don't do it, then truly the system does fall apart. And that's why I am quite encouraged by the steps that have been taken and are being taken uh, by real leaders in the country who are willing to sit down and talk and have tough conversations. The Money Show. The Friday File. The Friday File. No, no, it's time for the Friday File. I've got Dutch friends who were seconded to South Africa for a bit, and their biggest complaint, biggest complaint, this is a real first world problem, was the quality of our cheese. And I think, we, I think we've got some great commercial cheese and even better artisanal cheeses, but they got homesick for the stuff that they could get in the Netherlands, and they were never satisfied. They were never going to be satisfied. David Milan is the co-owner of Quikkerboom Kaas. Where is Quikkerboom Kaas located, David? Good evening. Good evening to you. Um, your previous comments, luckily cheese matures and never ever deteriorates to the end. So that's why we do it. <laughs> Quikkerboom Kaas is situated in, um, in Feldriff, a little town on the west coast 
of the Western Cape area. And um, yeah, here we are. And we don't make cheese out of kookaburms. It's the name of the 100-year-old kookaburm we've got in our front garden. Uh, what is a quicker worm? I mean, it's a worm that is a quicker, but um, does it have an anglicized name? Is it, a, is it a desert plant? What is it? It is a desert plant. It's called the quiver tree in anglicized ah, language. Okay. And right. the, the Bushmen or the sand tribe used it for their, uh, to make the box, to make the, the, the a quiver for the arrows. Yes. No, no. Now I know exactly what you're talking about. What what takes a cheesemaker up the west coast of South Africa to a fairly arid and quite difficult environment in which to, I don't know, give cows lovely green grass to eat so that they can make milky cream so that you can make delicious creamy cheese? That's a, a very interesting question because it didn't start out like that. I decided to make cheese as a hobby and I found we had the best milk supply on the whole planet here with a golden Guernsey herd up the road between us and Hopefield, 15 kilometers away. And um, we've got a beautiful milk supply and the Khoisa and Salt Factory down the road here gives us beautiful salt, which is the, they are the key elements to making good cheese. And I learned to make cheese in my kitchen, basically in a short course with um, Leon and Elaine van der Westhuizen. And yeah, it grew from there. We just made better and better cheese. And yeah, that's how it started. But what, you, do you not have a spa or pick and pay up the road? Why did you have to go make your own cheese? Well, that's why I make my own cheese. Because <laughs> I, I want to have good cheese. I have a chef and a cooking background. Um, and honestly, I got tired of buying cheese that didn't taste like cheese. And I don't want to put a stir on anyone else's product, but I decided to make proper cheese. And that's what we've done. And our business has grown steadily because we make proper cheese and really, really good cheese. What's the difference between the process that you follow and the commercial dairies follow? Um, because most of us will just go to our local supermarket, chuck in a block of cheese and number one, two, three, four, five, whatever level we believe that we can handle in terms of maturity and aging um, and, and versus what I, you know is a, a big job to make a cheese that pleases the palate but is substantially different to allow you to, to, to stand out in, in quite a cluttered cheesy market. Absolutely. Um, to make a good cheese, we use small batches. Our pasteurizers that we make the cheese in are 100 liters in capacity. Small batch, ultra, ultra careful care. We are very, very uh, fussy about the provenance of our milk, as I've just said, and our salt that we use in the cheeses, the cultures we use in the cheeses. They're all hand-reared, basically. And anything hand-read has got to be better than bulk-produced. There are no additives, no preservatives, absolutely nothing other than natural products in our, in our cheeses, which makes them really stand out. And we age our cheeses to the correct time that they should be eaten and enjoyed. And we won't put a product out there that we don't enjoy ourselves. How do you define, because you've, you've got to differentiate. So you've got one, and again, I, I will never, ever have this cheese, this particular feta, because you put cilantro in it. Or what's what's the other name for cilantro? 
um, devil's herb, uh, coriander. Oh, some, I think it's like 5% of the world's population think that uh, the coriander tastes like soap. Uh, it's something in our brains. And I just can't. Uh, coriander, I'm just getting, I'm heaving as, as we speak. Um, but I'm sure people who like coriander will love it very much. How do you, how do you select a sort of flavors that nobody else has ever put into cheeses before and go, you know, we think that this flavor combination is going to work and it's going to have a commercial market as well? Because you can't just keep making cheese for yourself. Firstly, you'll end up having a heart attack. And secondly, you'll run out of money. I'm not sure which will happen first. But um, it's 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 sort of part science and part art, I guess. Correct. We'll probably run out of money first, <laughs> but um, <laughs> to develop a good a good cheese takes around six months to a year, and it doesn't happen by accident. It's trial and error. Put something in. How does it taste? Is it good? Is it acceptable? Then we expose it to our clients and and friends. And what do you think of that? Oh, that's really, really good. Then we go into a small batch and produce that. Does it sell? Is it market acceptable? Oh, that's exceptional. Everyone wants to buy it. So now we go to production on that cheese. Then that process can take anything from three months to 12 months. And then I see flavors like smoked kelp gull. You do have to explain. Oh, gosh, that's... People ask us, what is this particular cheese? Let's take smoked kelp gull for an example. What can I compare this to in flavor? Nothing. It's an original cheese we developed here in Feldriff, our town in our area. And the kelp gull is one of our most common seabirds. And I developed smoked kelp gull as a basic uh, Alpine cheese, and it wasn't very interesting. So I decided to put it to my cold smoker and smoke it on wine barrel oak for two hours. And I put a huge complex and twist on that cheese, which makes it unique. <laughs> it's not like anything mm. else in the world. But I mean, it's this is like, I, mean, I said part fun, and part science and, and part art, but it's also part science, part art and part fun. Because really you are often, I'm sure, just winging it to see, let's see what happens. It's a bit like a two-year-old and, a, and an electric plug socket. They're about to stick their finger in it and, and see what happens. Yeah, at 68 years old, I'm definitely not a two-year-old, but we are still having fun doing that. We're developing cheeses for specific high-end restaurants. Um, for instance, we're doing a, 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 a buchu cheese and I really don't like buchu so we're trying to find a way that our clients are saying please develop this cheese for me yeah that's going to take another year we're working hard on it though so also a lot of fun yes a lot of science yeah mix buchu and cilantro yum (laughs) it's a wonderful no 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 (laughs) and take two flavors and see what happens david thank you for sharing with us this evening david milan the co-owner of quirkerworm cast and just google it um the cheeses are truly beautiful um they're big cheeses they're baby cheeses and they're just amazing uh cheeses i've not sampled the cheeses but they look absolutely extraordinary on your next money show we've got dr janesh ganda who's going to be our guest on how i make money how do you make living as a sports physician, unless, of course, you're in the Springbok rugby squad, in which case it's easy. But regular 
sports physicians. How do they do it? Our regular book reviewer, the managing director at Gateway's business consultants, Ian Mann with us, Toby Shapshak, the chief at Stuff Studios, plus all of the big money stories on the day, next time on The Money Show. 702. Bruce is on Twitter at Bruce Business. Let us play the Brutal Biz Quiz on this Friday night because that's what we do at this time. And of course, that'll be followed by Eyewitness News and the best bits of the money show from the week that has been. There's a fabulous South African startup, family owned. It was then partly owned by Sunlum Private Equity called Absolute Pets. This week, a retailer bought 93.5% of Absolute Pets. Which retailer is going into the dog food business? Give us a call. 011-8830-702-021-446-0567. Let's play the Brutal Biz Quiz this evening. That requires you and you and you, especially you, because you know the answer. Uh, give us a call this evening. 021-446-0567-011-8830-702. Who's bought 93.5% of absolute pets so that they can take on their biggest competitor? The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. The Money Show brought to you by APSA CIB, raising a glass to celebrate APSA's Pan-African excellence. APSA is a registered FSP. First question in tonight's Brutal Biz Quiz, who has taken a 93.5% stake in absolute pets? That is the first question in tonight's Brutal Biz Quiz. Let's go first to Joy in Lanasia. Hello, Joy. Evening, Bruce. How are you? We just need an answer, Joy. I'm lovely. Thank you. Very nice. Thank you. Don't mean to be rude, but we've got minutes, moments to go. I'm just going to take a while. Yes, Woolworths. Woolworths. Absolutely right. They saw ShopRite get into the pets business, and they've decided to take the fight back to them with absolute pets. Adam Newman is an Israeli-American billionaire businessman. He founded a co-working space company, which is going into liquidation or going into bankruptcy. What is the name of that shared workspace business? No, I don't know. But thank you, Joy, for playing. It was lovely to have you. She's so nice. How are you? Oh, that's very nice. Nkolisi in Pretoria, the name of the shared workspace business started by Adam Newman. Hello? Nkolisi, the shared workspace business started by Adam Newman. I was answering a different question. Uh, oh, well, uh, that's the question I'm asking now, you see. And uh, we, we move pet, on. Yeah, I'm afraid not. We've moved on. Uh, Shana in Centurion. Mm-hmm. Which uh, shared workspace business did Adam Newman begin? Oh, oh. Uh, hi, Bruce. I was thinking about the question um, about... <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay, guys, 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 guys. We we answer. We take one question. Somebody gets it right, and then we move on. You see. But thank you, Shana, very much indeed. Horsey in Pretoria. Um, Horsey Pretoria. We're on to the next question now. And Adam Newman founded which co-workspace business? Bruce, you're cheating us. I'm answering the the question about absolute pets. <laughs> Can't hear you, I'm afraid, Horsey in Pretoria. That's a bit of a constraint this evening. I don't know uh, if we can just boost the levels a little bit. Molef in Midrand. What company did Adam Newman start? 
Uh, absolutely. Uh, the answer was WeWork. Okay, thank you, uh, Mulefi. Sorry, the line, my, there's a connection problem that I'm struggling with this evening. I'm hoping you can hear me. South Africa's beaten New Zealand in three international events this year. Cricket, rugby, and what was the third event that they should have been good at, but we whipped them at that one as well? No, this isn't working tonight, I'm afraid. I'm going to have to abandon play because I can't hear you. That's so frustrating. It's actually debilitating. Um, please stop phoning because I'd love you to play and it's my favorite part of the week. It really is. We've just got to sort out whatever that gremlin is that is preventing me from hearing you. So um, the answers, and I couldn't really hear the answers. So yeah, the JC retailer that owns Absolute Pets is Woolworths. We work was started by Adam Newman, um, and it's a catastrophe. South Africa's beaten New Zealand in three international events this year, cricket, rugby, and sheep sharing. Can I share those sheep, mate? No. I'm going to eat them both myself. That's not what he said. Uh, and Baby City is owned by which company? Uh, Discam, remember, bought Baby City about two or three years ago. Discam results are today. They were good. They were fine. And then the FTX founder found guilty of cryptocurrency fraud, SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried. Well, today is Sam Bankman-Fried. Found guilty of stealing from customers of his now bankrupt cryptocurrency exchange, one of the biggest financial frauds on record, a verdict that cemented the fact that the 31-year-old former billionaire will spend up to 110 years in jail. That's huge. It's enormous. It's absolutely enormous. So, yes, uh, that is uh, Sam Bankman-Fried uh, found, prosecuted and found guilty on the first anniversary of the collapse of his cryptocurrency business. That brings an end to the first hour of this Friday evening edition of The Money Show. Looking forward to the next hour. It is going to be the best bits of The Money Show. First, though, your very latest Eyewitness News.